You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. Imagine your average Bigfoot encounter as you've likely seen or heard from witnesses on TV or radio. You're in rural America, perhaps near a swamp or shadowy mountains. There are noises that you don't recognize. And then you see a large ape-like humanoid walk through your field of vision and back into the wild, likely to never be seen again. Glimpses of a rare but natural creature, right? Well, if you've been listening to Monster Talk for a while, you've probably heard us hint that there's often stuff getting left out of these stories. We've certainly discussed rock throwing, but have you ever thought about how much that sounds like poltergeists? Or how about footprints that begin nowhere in particular and then end in the middle of a mud patch or in snow? Or how about a Bigfoot accompanied by tiny hairy people? Little feet? Goblins? Or ghostly figures in white accompanying or preceding the appearance of Bigfoot? Or glowing orbs? Or eyes that literally shoot out beams of light? Our teleports, our apportations, our UFOs. There's so much weirdness around this stuff that my friend Jeb Card calls Bigfoot hunting forest seances. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. 
Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Hey there, Monster Talkers. Karen and I have managed to get several episodes recorded about ghosts and paranormal topics and other monster-adjacent stuff, but I wanted to throw this episode ahead of those and get out something absolutely on brand for us in the monster category. There's been a concerted effort in cryptozoology, whether intentional or not, to sand off these unusual, unnatural, quasi-paranormal features to help Bigfoot seem more like a real flesh-and-blood creature. On this episode of Monster Talk, we're going to dive into the paranormal aspects of Bigfoot with authors Joshua Kutchin and Timothy Renner. Their two-volume look at paranormal aspects of Bigfoot is chock-full of what I'm tempted to call weird Bigfoot stories, yet what they make a very strong case for is that these may be weird in the not-mundane physics and biology sense, but they're not even remotely atypical for the kind of features common to many Bigfoot stories. We don't even come close to touching on the variety of unusual features covered in these two books. So if the topic of Paranormal Bigfoot is interesting to you at all, I think you'll find both of these volumes essential for your monster library. All right, let's get to the Monster Talk. Okay, tonight we're talking with Joshua Kutchen and Timothy Renner, and they are the co-authors of Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness, and the Bigfoot Phenomena, Volume 1, The Folklore, and Volume 2, The Evidence. Joshua is the author of several books covering weird topics, including cryptozoological, Fortean, and UFOs, and fairies. And these books include A Trojan Feast, The Brimstone Deceit, and Thieves in the Night. And apparently he lives literally a rock throw away from my hometown of Kennesaw. And we've also got Timothy Renner, who's an illustrator, an author, and a musician who lives in Pennsylvania. And his work can be found in books, magazines, comics, and on album covers. He's a podcaster, the creator of Strange Familiars, and he has frequently appeared on Where Did the Road Go? And his books include Beyond the Seventh Gate, Bigfoot in Pennsylvania, Bigfoot West Coast Wildman, Don't Look Behind You, and Apparitions, Illustrations of the Other. And we'll have links to all those in the show notes. Welcome to Monster Talk. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Hi, guys. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, I do live uh, just a stone's throw away from you, and um, up until recently have been in Kennesaw like five days a week. Um, wow. So, yeah, <laughs> I've, been, I've been circling you like a shark, I guess. What <laughs> I thought like I could shark you know? circles its prey. <laughs> yeah. I saw some glowing eyes. Was that you? Like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I am really excited to talk to you guys because, um, you know, we've been doing this show for more than a decade now. And too long. I, <laughs> I hope it hasn't been too long. But I mean, yeah, even so, I mean, we went from being pure, is that real? Is that real? Is that real? Kind of skeptics to, I, I think I've really started thinking more along um, the folklore, the psychology, the sociology, the anthropology, the culture, are, are, and everything. yeah, all the cultural impact of this stuff. It, it's it's so much more interesting and diverse than just is Bigfoot real or not. And I, I, I think I, I suspect we're probably in different places as far as belief in some aspects of this stuff goes. But I think we share the same deep enthusiasm for these topics and these stories. So I'm really excited about talking about this. Sorry, I think he's trying to ask if you guys are skeptics or believers or something in between. Um, I am absolutely a believer, but I end up arguing from the skeptic position 
uh, often because I do not believe it's an ape in the woods. It's something we can put in a cage. I don't think it's that simple. So I end up arguing with these uh, apers a lot about uh, I end up taking the, the, yeah, the skeptic position. <laughs> I end up I taking mean, the skeptic position. I say I, I wear I put on the skeptic's hat and it doesn't fit very well, but I, I they <laughs> kind of force me to wear it sometimes. I mean, yeah, I, I couldn't I, I resonate with a lot of what Tim said. It's probably why we ended up being able to write a book together. Um, nice. Yeah. You know, I was I was I was talking with Mike Cleland the other night, um, the owl guy, the owl UFO guy, and I was saying, you know, sometimes at the end of the day, you know, I, I think that people like me who are attracted to this field are people who really enjoyed like literary criticism but never had the, the stomach to say something new about like some of these great novels because what I really dig is it's like you alluded to the psychological aspect of it. I mean, that, especially with like stuff like UFOs, there's so much symbolism that just is dripping off these encounters that even if they're completely, um, you know, quote unquote in someone's head, uh, there's still interesting stuff to be mined there. Now, you know, I, I, I kind of think that these things are from your head, but not in your head, um, is where I sort of fall on things. But yeah, like Tim, I swear we sort of end up, uh, uh, arguing from the skeptical standpoint, same with, you know, not only apers, but also people who believe that UFOs are aliens. I'm definitely kind of in the anti-extraterrestrial hypothesis camp on that one. So where do you fall? I mean, you've written about uh, fairies and fairy lore as well. Uh, so in I haven't had a chance to read those books. So where, where do you fall on that? Are, are, are you? I guess what I'm wondering is, like, I think a lot of people look at, like, Jacques Vallée's work, and they, they don't actually read it. But they just think, oh, Jacques Vallée, yeah, yeah. he thinks UFOs are like fairies. Therefore, UFOs explain fairies. And then that's not what he's saying. I think it's the other way around. He's saying, you know, maybe it's more fairies might explain UFOs, you know, or fairies yeah. might explain aliens. It, it's it, so I, I it's I think this really easily misunderstood work. And I, I wonder where you how, how you fall in that whole sort of field. Yeah, I, I don't think either are correct. I think both are trying to grasp at something that has an objective real exteriority to the human condition, but neither system of, of belief, neither body of folklore is really a hundred percent accurate in what it's describing. And, and, you know, by that, I mean, you know, I don't like to admit it, but sometimes I wonder if this stuff doesn't come from us in some way as well. But, you know, to be intellectually honest, you kind of have to admit that maybe that's a possibility. I think, um, I think we, I, I had the opportunity to go to a monster conference in Texas, uh, in 2019. And it was put on by the religious studies, uh, group at, um, the university of Texas in San Marcos. And we were there talking about all kinds of monsters. And I thought it was really interesting because there was a whole lot of talks that sort of dealt with the role of uh, Yeti in Buddhism. But one of the questions that kept coming off uh, like outside of the actual talks, but like just around the tables and stuff, which is where the real magic happens at these conferences, by the way. <laughs> yeah, oh, 100%. Is, is, the question was, in what way, or it, I, I think I questioned, is Bigfoot a religion? And then I think the question that was put back to me is, well, what is a religion, first of all? But like, how is Bigfoot not a religion was even a more interesting question, because... I mean, you know, outside of the question of this, like literally, do you worship Bigfoot? There's so much about the um, the belief system, the sort of religious experiences, the the sort of communion with nature when you go out to look for Bigfoot, uh, 
and these sort of the offerings and, and there's there's so many aspects of it that feel like a religion and and you can i think study the field from a religious uh perspective not again not talking about going to church or you know having a religious book but just in this sort of sociological sense of how people practice their interaction with this, what is effectively a faith-based, unprovable concept. I, I loved it. It was really interesting. We I mean, need a church of Bigfoot, I guess. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't want to hog the mic, so I'll let, I'll let Tim comment here. But, uh, I mean, th- these things can fill that sort of religious, religion-shaped hole in some people's hearts for absolutely sure. I think it's a matter of trying to decide if, I mean, do you study cults the same as you study religion? Because it's definitely a cult. I mean, no doubt about that. Interesting. Yeah. And I guess you can. It's just yet another lens you can put on it, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and depending on, I mean, there's even different factions, right? There's different, you know, warring cults within, under the umbrella of the, the general, you know, cult of Bigfoot, uh, you know, that's, when you said this conference was put on by religious studies, I honestly thought you were making a joke about a certain organization in the South when you said that, uh, because I thought that's where you were going with it, because uh, they're so you know devoted and, and sure of their ideas as regards to these things, which, you know, n- nothing being proven and, and no one having captured one. I don't know how you can be, but uh, more power to them. That said... Um, you know, there are, there are cult-like aspects. I think, you know, I think Josh is going to some extent to point out how there's more of that with the UFOs. And, and we kind of struggle to find those sort of... Uh, now, they, they do happen. You do have those sort of life-changing moments when people have encounters and and they, they you know, become more environmentally conscious and, and so forth, like like the UFO contact experience. But they're, they're far less with, with Bigfoot encounters than they are with UFO encounters. But, uh, you, you know, it's certainly there, certainly the, the gifting um, thing, when, when people start the gifting exchange, I mean, that maps almost perfectly onto, you know, spirit gifting. If you read that into folklore, I've, you know, I've written some about that. It's, it's almost like a one-to-one thing. It's, it's to my mind, when you're gifting with, you know, quote unquote, Bigfoot, what you're doing is, is spirit gifting in, to my mind, almost certainly it's just. It's too much the same there. So, um, you know, there's a lot of aspects of it that, that kind of at least lock into religion. I don't, you know, I don't know if it's fair to call them a cult or to call it a religion, but there's certainly aspects of it that, that you know, kind of, you know, go step by step with that. Maybe for some it's certainly a cult, but uh, you talked about gifting. Could you just explain a bit more about what that is? Yeah, yeah. So uh, many, many uh Bigfoot witnesses or, or those who, who claim to encounter Bigfoot, maybe not, maybe they don't even see him sometimes, but uh, they enter into these gifting exchanges where they will leave something, um, often it's food, but not always, in an area for Bigfoot, and Bigfoot, they believe, something, leave something uh, for them in exchange. And these uh, long-term exchanges go on, and it's fairly effective. I mean, a lot of people have really, really good luck with it. Um, you know, whether they're exchanging with Bigfoot or whether something else is going on, you know, it's hard to say. I don't think anyone's actually seen, you know, Bigfoot leave the gift there, except maybe for, I think the Mike Green video shows uh, Bigfoot, you know, leaving something at the stump, stump presumably that he was doing a long-term gifting exchange with. But um, 
other than that, I don't think a lot of people have actually seen Bigfoot leave these things. It's just, you know, it's assumed. But uh, they do get results, and, and it's very, very interesting. But, you know, people have been spirit gifting for ages. I mean, the, the simplest one to point out is uh, leaving cookies and milk for Santa Claus. That's, you know, that's, that's everybody does it on, uh, well, not everybody, but, you know, most people who believe in the in, faithful, uh, the faithful do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, is Bigfootery a religion? Uh, there has actually a really cool chap who sent me a book that he did uh, on uh, sociological studies um, in amongst paranormal believers, quote unquote. And there are some really interesting, uh, some interesting correlations that he finds between some of these things. But the one that he found, um, in Bigfootery, I'm going to keep on using that word, Bigfootery, um, was that they tend to be really conventional people with one exception, and that's that less than half of American Bigfoot conference attendees identify as Protestant, which is lower than the national average, and attend church less frequently than the national average. So I think that all these things um, do have a, a metaphysical component to them, whether people realize it or not. I mean, uh, I think even people who identify as religious in other aspects kind of get drawn into that a little bit because what you're really doing is you're, if you're doing it right, you're trying to figure out the way that the uh, reality works. I think. I agree. Although I would have to say as a religion, you could at least get in the pulpit and say, can I get an ape man? <laughs> okay. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there is a, there is a strong current of people in the Bigfoot community who, I don't want to quite say um, are sort of evangelicals, but there there is a vocal group that say, "Oh, Bigfoot are the Nephilim," and they've tied into you know um, mm -hmm. all all these other pre-flood myths, and they've they've tied it into those sort of fallen angel categories, and that's why the you know Bigfoot are able to do all these strange things and Mormon folklore. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, so I thought I know for some of our audience, this is going to be a big surprise because I, you know, having probably not read this kind of stuff before, it, it's real easy to read into cryptozoology and look into it and exclude this weird stuff. And I think what your books do is a, a fantastic job of collecting the stuff that's frequently excluded, probably on purpose uh, from a lot of the cryptozoological <laughs> stuff. Yeah, I ran into this. I, I we, uh, I think last summer I was uh, doing some work on the Ape Canyon case and went back and read Fred Beck's uh, uh, actual book that he put out about. And I was absolutely shocked yep. to find all this spiritualism stuff and all this weird stuff in there that that I'd never seen portrayed in a documentary or written about in any other of the books. And so, and then to find it in your stuff as well was really I was so happy that somebody else knew about this. Can you can you Introduce our audience to the Ape Canyon story. I, I think most people have at least heard of it, but I mean, could you introduce it as it's usually told and then talk about what's left out? I think that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So the Ape Canyon story, as I knew it before writing Where the Footprints End, Volume 1, was a group of miners were in the mountains in Washington State, and they started seeing some Bigfoot creatures, and a guy shot at one, and a group of Bigfoot creatures came to their cabin that night and harassed them all night long, you know, banged on the walls and climbed on the roof and attacked the cabin and threw rocks at it and so forth. And and that's basically the story I heard. And uh, it sounds like this great Bigfoot encounter that, that uh, you know, like so many other Bigfoot encounters, maybe a little more intense. And uh, 
but in, in general, it's it's nothing out of the ordinary as far as if you want to believe that, that they're just creatures. And I think Josh found Fred Beck's book for me and said and just pointed me to it. Said, "Hey, you, you need to check this out." And <laughs> I start reading it, and I, I was like, well, "This is nothing that's been presented." So in, th- this case appears in Bigfoot literature again and again and again over the years. It's one of these kind of hallmark cases. People point to it again and again. And never is this stuff pointed out. Never, never, never. But Fred Beck, who was there, and if we're not going to trust the people who are there, I don't know who you can trust. You know, you're going to trust some some newspaper articles that were written, you know, at the time more than the guy who was there. I mean, this guy was there. And he's saying it all started when they saw what he called the ghost or the spirit of a giant Native American. Now, what does he mean by giant? I don't know. He doesn't, that's, he doesn't really clarify. One would assume not a Bigfoot. One would assume he was looking at a giant Native American. And this Native American told them to follow a white arrow through the sky into into the wilderness up there. So they did. So now they're following something that's in the sky. They're following something through the sky, which, you know, if that doesn't sound, you know, ring any UFO bells for you, I don't I don't know what else you need. Along the way, they meet what they called another spirit and how they knew she was a ghost or a spirit and not a normal person. Again, he doesn't clarify, but he says they meet this other spirit named Vander White. And uh, I don't think she turned letters for a living. I don't think that was on the air yet. But uh, <laughs> but, but Vander White. Uh, I think she tells them where, the, where to find the mine and they find this gold mine. They're basically directed to this gold mine by this arrow and by this other spirit. And, and she meant so much to them that they actually named the mine, the Vander White mine. Uh, they get there and they start hearing strange sounds coming f- from the ground, like, you know, huge machinery and so forth. They find, one day they find two or three footprints, I forget what it was, in the middle of an acre-wide sandbar. So no footprints go, leading up to them, no footprints leading away from them, just two or three footprints. And they said it looked like something picked up whatever it was and, and dropped it in the sandbar and then picked it up again and flew away with them. And, you know, all manner of weird things are happening. I think he had uh, an apport of a pencil. Uh, he said he knew the pencil was at his house and he needed a pencil and it just appeared in his hand. So these weird poltergeist like things are happening. And eventually they, they see the creature and then, then the story plays out, you know, somewhat like, like is reported. They see the creature. One of them shoots at it. They do attack their, their cabin. It sounds like a very harrowing night they had. And uh, the following day, I think they, they, you know, scared them enough where they, they packed up their stuff and left. I think the next day they saw a creature and they shot it and it fell off a cliff, I believe. Oh, wow. <laughs> but Fred Beck himself says, you know, these things are supernatural. I forget the exact wording he used, but these, these things are, are absolutely of the, of the spiritual realm. They're something other. So they're not ape men. They're something else. And, you know, he's writing this with his son in the 1960s. So he, as far as I'm concerned, Fred Beck is way ahead of his time with this stuff. And, you know, all of that is, you know, Josh and I kind of use this term weird washing to say that, you know, people just wash the weird away from so many of these stories to just only present the stuff that sounds like it's a monkey, a giant monkey in the woods. And anything weird associated with it is they just don't mention it. It just goes to the side 
And uh, they, you know, well, we're just going to talk about the stuff that makes it sound like an ape, which is, uh, it's not uh, sound, in my opinion. It's not. It's not. Uh, well, it's it stems from a desire to sit at the big boys' table of science. Sorry, you know, that's that's sort of where it's coming from. And Tim and I were are like, you know, no, we're dragging them back to the nerds' table. Like, no, <laughs> you're hanging out with us. <laughs> well, when you were talking about the the arrow or the light. Uh, and drawing parallels to UFOs, it also made me think of the three wise men, and it sounded kind of faintly biblical too. The yeah. story. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so you think that uh, these stories aren't uh, included, and there's this kind of this this Bigfoot washing taking place uh, because they? Do you think it somehow delegitimizes claims? And uh, certainly for people who have more of a cryptozoological slant, that they think they're being more scientific, and so adding these kinds of elements makes it uh, undermines it somehow. Yeah. They're, I mean, in, in my view, and it's just, you know, what I think they're so desperate to be accepted by mainstream science, that they, anything that's crazy, anything that sounds kooky, they want to, you know, remove from uh, the equation. Sure. Some things they can't like, like glowing eyes, for instance, so, you know, no, <laughs> no animal on earth has glowing eyes. And, they want to say it's it's eye shine. Well, no high order primate has a tapetum lucidum, which is required for eye shine, meaning reflective. Uh, tapetum lucidum is a reflective membrane in the eye. If you drive down the road and you see a deer and their eyes light up in your headlights, that's the tapetum lucidum reflect, reflecting your headlights. So they want to say, oh, it's not eye glow, it's eye shine. It's, it's a tapetum lucidum. Well, <laughs> no high order primates have this. So that makes them unique among higher primates, but it doesn't explain all of the witnesses, many, many, many witnesses who insist, no, this wasn't reflection, this was self-illumination. These eyes glowed. They lit up. Some of them changed colors. We've we've had, you know, a couple witnesses I've spoken to said they watched them change colors as they looked at them, blinking like Christmas tree lights. These They're insistent. And again, we don't have a lot other than witness testimony. So if a witness says the eyes were self-illuminating, kind of have to go with what the witness said, you know, rather than just go, oh, you're dumb and you're mistaken. You don't know what you were looking at. You know, if you do that, like Josh says, you can roll every case back to, well, you don't know what you're looking at. It must have been a bear. You I know? think in deer, though, isn't it called hit him when you see him? <laughs> <laughs> Not for me. <laughs> I know, but it's to- totally true, though. I mean, I, I think and this is um, this filtering issue is something that I think uh we have a problem with on the skeptical side as well, where we want to filter down to the natural explanation. And that's what we'd like to believe. And, and, and it's really easy to say, what well, we look to first. Yeah. It's like, well, and we want it to be natural because that's what we believe is real and, and implausible. Our worldview. <laughs> but people experience things that are unnatural. I mean, like their narratives do not fit the natural world. So I think it leaves us with the problem of, well, we have to assume it's being created in the mind in order to make it fit our, 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 our belief system. And, and right. I think in the, the other option is like the, like the cryptozoological people who want it to be natural. They just shave it off. They sand it down to the natural parts. Well, once again, like I said, no animal on earth has glowing eyes. But you know what does have glowing eyes? All kinds of things in folklore. Go back through folklore, you'll find stuff left and right with glowing eyes, including eyes that change color. Yeah. Glowing eyes that change color. So, you know, different elves and, 
you know, uh, goblins and, and trolls and you name it. You and know, we, we, eyes. My, my daughter and I just watched the uh, animated uh, Hobbit uh, last night and Smog had uh, glowing eyes. Like his eyes were like spotlights going all over the gold. And I was talking to her about how that that's a, a common thing in folklore, but it makes no biological sense. Right, exactly. There's, it makes no sense whatsoever. Like you would think, I mean, unless they work by some, you know, mechanics that that we don't understand, you would think light light up eyes would ruin your night vision, not make them better. You know. Well, and, and I think Tim and I still leave the door open for a biological ape if it has like twenty different adaptations that have no precedent in the animal kingdom. <laughs> like then, <laughs> then then we're okay with it because, you know, we sort of systematically go through not only stuff like the Tapetum Lucidum, but you know, these footprints the the trackways sometimes just end in the middle of these fields and people will say, Oh, the Bigfoot jumped, you know, to harder media that wouldn't transfer their footprints. But sometimes these are like literally in a field where there's nothing, there's, you know, un- untouched mud or untouched snow for like a hundred yards. So there's nothing on the planet that, that can jump that far. Um, so yeah, just trying to go through all these different, you know, explanations. Oh, well, Bigfoot jump. Oh, well, if you have three to Bigfoot tracks, they're inbred and trying to just show why these are not sa- satisfying answers. And if they are, they kind of go everything against everything we know about mammals and primates and, and all this stuff. But I think a lot of the problem, part of the reason that um, a lot of cryptozoologists are so hesitant to embrace some of this weirder stuff is that they just aren't as up to speed on consciousness studies as I think the ghost hunting crowd and the, the UFO crowd are. Um, because that, when you start entertaining a lot of those ideas, some of this other stuff becomes a lot more palatable. Ooh, can we, can you want to unpack that a little bit? So there aren't a lot of hills that I'll die on in the paranormal slash supernatural, but consciousness studies are, are pretty high up there. Um, there are things that are happening in laboratories that are not dramatic, but they do seem to illustrate that certain people under certain conditions can nudge, um, statistics for certain events in statistically significant ways. Um, so again, not dramatic changes, but some really significant ones. Um, for example, um, there are some studies that, uh, Dean Radin, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but, uh, uh Dean very, Radin, very familiar. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking about some of Dean Radin stuff that is, um, measurable at the six Sigma threshold, which means that, um, which means that basically the overall odds against chance for anything else comparable would be, you know, assessed at over a billion to one. So there's some really good laboratory work happening there. And what's interesting about a lot of this consciousness stuff is that if consciousness is not tied to matter and is somehow fundamental, then it really does introduce an X factor into literally everything that we do. Um, And people have been, looking at this from the laboratory angle and also from, you know, the psychedelic angle Um, and taking a look at, uh, you know, trying to sort of almost map these DMT realms. You know, Rick Strassman did some great work back in the nineties at the university of uh, New Mexico, I believe it was back in the nineties where people are having some experiences that are consistent and veridical. And the UFO crowd has really embraced these as saying, look, here's a mechanism perhaps by which we can explain the consistencies of these sightings. But you have the, you know, Bigfoot community saying things like, well, Bigfoot can't be anything but an animal because only animals leave footprints. But again, if if, the, if these psi results are true, then 
the inten- the intangible nature of psychic phenomena has a tangible impact on the world, which means that the the non physical can impact the physical. And uh, I think that's something that a lot of these cryptozoologists ignore at their peril, because once you start looking at this in sort of a weirder angle, a folkloric angle, um, an angle that's sort of embracing that sort of bleeding edge of consciousness science, things become a little bit more palatable, I think. Yeah, I, I we we've talked before on our show about the uh, Skinwalker Ranch case, and mm-hmm. I think uh, it always felt like an outlier. But if these cases are having the paranormal sanded off before they go into publication. Maybe their portal Bigfoot isn't so weird. <laughs> well, Skinwalker's a big problem anyway, because I think that, so you can't deny the fact that like the Uinta Basin is a weird area. It has a lot of strange folklore, a lot of strange sightings, not tied to the Sherman ranch, but there's some really good research um, that was done by uh, Erica Luke's, a UFO researcher that has pretty much settled the case for me that there were at least some instances where, uh, where non, uh, nonviolent technology, um, like crowd control technology was being tested on people without their consent. Um, there's some really shady paperwork <laughs> buried in some of the documents, um, around some of the people who, you know, were, were guards there and whatnot. And it seems like that's at least a component. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that it was odd, there to begin with, and the government thought that they could sort of write off these tests as being ooh spooky supernatural, maybe. Um, or does it mean that you know the government's somehow harnessing some forces there, which is a little bit more a little bit more fanciful, perhaps? Um, but there does seem to be a component there that was really just uh, people doing things to people. The government doing things to people without their consent it really does appear that way. Okay, I want to shift gear a little bit and just talk about uh, the, the first volume in particular. And you focus on folklore in, in that uh, that book. Um, so I'm wondering how you you've already spoken about some witnesses that you've had conversations with. Uh, how did you go about collecting stories for the book and deciding what to put in and what to leave out? We cast a pretty wide net. So we looked at Bigfoot literature. We looked at uh, old newspaper articles. Um, I in my other books, I, I collect a lot of um, these old, you know, before it was known as Bigfoot, they called them wild man. So a lot of these old newspaper reports. So we had all those to pull from. Uh, I do field work. So I'm, I'm in York County, Pennsylvania. I, I think I'm the guy. And maybe there's another guy, but I, I think I'm the guy that people call when there's a Bigfoot encounter. I, I like to think I'm the guy. I hope I'm the guy. So I, I meet a lot of witnesses. <laughs> on guy? <laughs> you want to give out your number? Right. <laughs> <laughs> they can find me at strangefamiliars.com. I do not want to give out my number. Witness testimony, you know, when available. I, I meet a lot of witnesses through my podcast as well. I have, you know, people come on and tell their stories. So, um, you know, it, it was a pretty wide net we cast. And we looked, you know, as as wide and far, I think, as we could, you know, for, mm-hmm. for examples of these stories. And, and there was no shortage of them. We didn't have a problem finding <laughs> your Bigfoot stories. <laughs> Are we what? predominantly looking in? Uh, sorry to interrupt. Predominantly in in North America, or you were looking around the world? I, around the world, just to, a lot of times to demonstrate. So, if, you know, if I'm talking about glowing eyes, which I I talk about in the second book, but you know, just as an example, I want to try to lay some cases of of stuff and you know around the world, just to show that it's it's not just happening here. 
but uh, it ends up being, you know, I think we're in America, so I think, you know, the vast majority of everything comes from, from the United States. <laughs> the strange stuff. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's, I mean, especially, um, I'm thinking of, you know, Yowie folklore in mean, Australia has especially got a real t- high strange tinge to it. Um, oh, it definitely does. I think there's a lot of uh, influence, too. I am I live in the States, but, uh, yeah, we, we talked a lot about I said that just for you, actually. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think probably the next strangest large hairy cryptid is is the Yowie. But part of that is that a lot of these cultures um, have not tried to force these large wild men into the the science box. So you don't hear about the stories being strange as much. They're always framed in like spirit context and whatnot. But a lot of it too was, you know, Timothy, I think between Timothy and I, we've got a, a pretty solid grasp on some of the things to look for that are, are anomalous. And in a lot of cases, some of the stuff that we pulled from was from very straightforward sources that just didn't quite realize. I think, I think some of them didn't quite realize what they were reporting and what they were saying, you know, <laughs> cause it's like, Oh, that thing that you just said lines up with this, uh, you know, Russian wood sprite from this <laughs> you know, one obscure manuscript or what you know that sort, that sort of thing, um, but you know I, I I think a lot of the benefit, and I've said this a couple of times, um, for for me is that Timothy has such a great background in field work that it really uh, complemented what I do well. Tim does what I do well as well, but <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> But Tim, Tim brought bringing that combination of field work and some personal experience to it um, was really was really really exciting. And I think our, our brains both sort of work in the same way uh, on this stuff. Well, I, th- I think one of the interesting things is when you're thinking about how to decide what to include and what to exclude, you're facing the same challenge of of what it, what is within a category and what's not within a category. And and when you look at the wild man. The hairy man, the Bigfoot, the three-toed Bigfoot, the five-toed Bigfoot. There's all these, you know, the Enkidu from Gilgamesh. I mean, there's so many places where you go, well, that's probably a Bigfoot or that's probably a Bigfoot. But is it? I mean, like, are these <laughs> things the same or are they different? And, and and from a biological sense, it makes no sense to put a three-toed thing with a five-toed thing. But from a hairy humanoid perspective, it makes a lot of sense to lump them together narratively. So how, how did you, like, try to uh, use those sort of categorizations in, in your work? Well, for the sake of the apers, they better hope it's all the same thing. Well, <laughs> otherwise... <laughs> They're they're gonna have to explain what five six seven eight nine ten different kinds of hairy creatures you know upright walking creatures that are out there, so they they better hope it's all the same. But no, I think you know loosely if it was Terry and walked on two legs, you know it was fair game for us. So I'm actually one of the creatures in this book is yes, <laughs> yes. yeah in a broad definition. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is just really interesting to me because. Uh, it, on the surface of things, it sounds like it's a, a new angle on Bigfoot, but really what you're saying is this, a lot of these stories have been around for a long time, so it's, uh, it's, it's really a, an older angle, I guess, um, and we've kind of changed our perception of what Bigfoot is over time. Well, I, I, 
don't like to dwell on this too long, but there is kind of a weird colonialist vibe to a lot of cryptozoology. You know, no, 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 coming, dwell, dwell. <laughs> coming in and saying, "Oh, those silly, those silly natives! They believe this thing Savages. disappears. It, it must, <laughs> it must absolutely be jumping into a ditch or behind a tree because we know things can't disappear." So a lot of it, you know, sure. Um, I do think Tim and I went to some some great pains to look at a lot of indigenous lore and to not again not treat the cultures as monolithic because you know North America people said that this thing was a spirit they said it was an ape they said it was a man who became a spirit they said it was a little half and half like all sorts of different things so you can't say you know in Native American folklore Bigfoot is so and so really trying to zero in on a lot of these um on a lot of these individual tribes but that's I think that's the thing that I found startling is that some of the things that you see in modern reports are absolutely um described in a lot of this older literature i mean um one of the things that cryptozoologists used like to trot out as sort of a i guess not deus ex machina i guess it's deus ex, deus ex sasquatch um <laughs> to, to answer everything is um is infrasound you know so if if bigfoot disappeared he zapped you with infrasound which are these subsonic frequencies that indeed can disorient. Oh, Bigfoot zapped you with infra infrasound, and your your vision went hazy, and that's why you didn't see where it went. Um, and they like to keep on trotting that out, but to a lot of indigenous people, um, it was, no, these creatures have the ability to hypnotize you. And uh, it kind of seems like a more parsimonious place to, <laughs> to start from than saying everything is infrasound, because infrasound, I think Tim mm -hmm. and I have a running joke that like everything that's strange is always infrasound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's the uh, it's it's marsh gas for UFOs, right? So, <laughs> the, well, I, I think yeah. it, a pet peeve of mine is the people, you know, the Bigfooters who want to say that Native American folklore about hairy men is definitely Bigfoot, and that's a real animal, but they're just going to ignore the talking coyote, right? Like, okay, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah. it's common folklore, you know. I I. I I don't think it's right to just, you know, pick out the things you like and just exclude everything else as, as myth, right? So I, I think uh, that's what we do. <laughs> that's that's exactly along the colonial appropriation stuff you're talking about, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> but uh, going back to cases that are commonly uh, talked about Bigfoot lore, and they shave off the weird, or, or, or sand, maybe I should sand off. They sand off the weird, but. Maybe there's no better case than that of the Momo story because that's one that always seemed a little weird uh, the way it gets stuck into a lot of Bigfoot books, but it's a lot weird. That is a strange case. Could could you talk a little bit about the Momo story? And we we're probably going to end up doing a whole episode about that because uh, I, I, I <laughs> I'm I've just it's started tough. watching the uh, Small Town Monsters coverage and I love how they're doing it as a sort of a, a lost movie thing. That's really funny. Mm -hmm. So. I, I asked Seth Breedlove when he came on my show. I was like, did, did you do – because I hadn't seen the Momo thing when he came on yet. I was like, did you cover the weird stuff? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we cover the weird stuff. They kind of like dipped their toe yeah. in the weird stuff in <laughs> It's that. weird. It's a weird case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's really, really odd. And I think, I think probably Josh can speak to it better than I. He, I went into it a little bit in one of my chapters, but he really kind of went into it a little bit more. I mean there's there's UFOs and there's voices from the woods and – and uh, I'll I'll go ahead and let let Josh speak to it because, like I said, I, he does Bigfoot uh, like coffee. More. That's a you know these are good questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, well, uh, way back in 1972, in the incredibly confusingly named town of Louisiana, Missouri, 
<laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> the Harrison family uh, saw a large hairy creature. Uh, it was you know tall, over average man sized, and uh, was carrying a dead dog. And this sort of kicked off a series of. Um, basically monster hunts in the area um, where this creature was seen. And sometimes they would go into places where they thought it had been. And there was this horrible smell and they thought, well, maybe the smell is some sort of defense mechanism or this or that or the other. But um, it's interesting because at the same time that this was happening, there was a lot of associated UFO phenomena. Um, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Four days after that initial sighting, uh, there was actually a, a Pentecostal church that was letting out, and the uh, the congregation saw two fireballs shoot from Mar- this area called Mars Off Hill, which is where they thought Momo was hiding out. And uh, one was white, and the other one was green, and uh, they actually descended into the woods far off. Um, uh, later, there was another there was another UFO sighting of something that performed this perfect gold cross on the moon, which I kind of think sounds a little bit like Fatima or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, the, the apparently it lit the road up like it was as bright as day uh, for them to drive. Um, there were a couple other fireballs that were seen uh, in the area as well. Um, and uh, as you alluded to, a uh, couple of anomal- examples of these anomalous voices that were in the woods, um, people who were searching for Momo would hold, hear things like, you know, you boys stay out of these woods by this, old man voice or you know one of them famously said i'll i'll take your cup of coffee which is really strange um over my dead body (laughs) right you can have my cup of coffee when you trade me some tasteless pancakes for it (laughs) right um and just just more of these weird ufos were seen and that's also a case where supposedly momo missouri monster um left behind these three-toed tracks you know, these three-toed footprints, people who are conventional Bigfooters will say that they only occur in specific areas and that's it's indicative of, uh, you know, inbreeding or something. If you've ever looked at one of these footprints, they're not a deformity. Like, there's just no way. They, they look like, like these giant, like, three-pronged, almost chicken feet kind of things that are um, 
you know, the, 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 Emu. It's, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and, and it's manifested identically on both feet. So if it was a deformity, it probably wouldn't do that. If it was an injury, it probably wouldn't manifest across both feet. And they're actually pretty consistent. Um, but what's interesting is that there are plenty of examples um, in folklore, not only some indigenous folklore here in the U.S., but also um, in Europe of, you know, chicken-footed apes or turkey-footed apes. There was an example from County Tipperary in Ireland where the fairy queen was upset that someone was, um, was you know, building on her fairyland. So she actually ended up uh, transforming into an ape with turkey feet. So I, I don't know what to make of that, but, but, but that, that's another folklore connection. And I think uh, if you look at that coupled with, you know, a lot of this witch folklore that, you know, witches, some witches would have chicken's feet and some fairies would have chicken's feet as well. Um, it just raises a lot more questions than answers, but that's, but somehow that's still more convincing to me than, than the conventional explanation that it's a deformity or that it's an injury or something. It is definitely some kind of foul beast. so in your research uh you talk about the intersection uh between bigfoot and an astonishing array of phenomena that i wouldn't have uh typically linked in in my head and you've already spoken a little bit about fairies and ufos and now witches too uh but i'm interested in the links between uh bigfoot and poltergeists and women in white and ghosts can you tell us a little bit about some of your findings there? You want to start with poltergeist, Josh? Yeah, I guess so. Um, so I, I really wish that I could take, you know, full credit for this, but it, it had kind of been mentioned in passing in a lot of, you know, cryptozoological um, circles that, oh, you know, if you take a look at all the Bigfoot stuff without Bigfoot, it kind of looks like poltergeist cases. And it's true. If you look at sort of that subset of, what the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization call Class B reports, which are basically, you know, thrown stones, anomalous voices, anomalous smells, you know, large footprints, um, feelings of being watched, you know, knocks or, you know, wood knocks is what they call them, but knocks or raps in the forest. If you take that same suite of phenomena and you put it in a house, it's it's a poltergeist. Like, <laughs> that's what everybody would sure. call, call it a haunting or, or a poltergeist. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a lot of this stuff... I think we're looking at a lot of the same things. Well, in terms actually, of with, with those three-toed feet, are they poultry geists? Oh, oh, <laughs> it's the dad joke hour. Sorry. <laughs> I, I blame Tim because he started with that Vander White joke, which was just... <laughs> uh, it's an endemic problem on this show. I apologize. <laughs> lightly. Right. I lightly apologize. Sorry, it's go ahead. It's been a pandemic problem in my house. I have my whole family doing these stupid puns now. It, it's a pandemic. Yep. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so, so a lot of these things really do seem context dependent. Yeah. And uh, I find it even more interesting that, you know, the two places that you would see poltergeist occur were typically, you know, a around a young person, typically a female with sexual frustration that that all that sort of ageist sexist research has, has been expanded with um the guy by the name of Christopher Larson, who, who has pretty much demonstrated that poltergeist phenomena can happen to anybody. We sort of need to abandon that idea. But the idea was that poltergeist phenomena in parapsychological circles was understood to not so much be a, a you know a spirit phenomena, but it would tend to happen around um, you know adolescent focuses, adolescent uh, focal points, um, or 
it would happen in seances, you know, these spiritualist seances that you'd find um, in the late 1800s and whatnot. Um, and interestingly enough, there are, I can think of at least three or four different cases where during these spiritualist seances, they actually manifested a large hairy man. Um, I, I believe it was um, Frenet Kluski was a famed medium who manifested one and uh the paranormal author stan gooch uh i believe was at a seance where he saw this figure that was either like a caveman covered in furs or an ape man covered in in hair um so again that's just another another connection that says maybe we're looking at something completely different out there in the woods that isn't you know if, if you incorporate that poltergeist idea it helps to not only explain the stuff that we associate with Bigfoot, but also the weirder stuff that people want to throw out. Mm-hmm. Did, did you talk about lithoboly, Josh? Lithoboly. I always said lithoboly, but that's probably because I live in Georgia. Um, <laughs> <laughs> lithoboly, lithoboly, um, the throwing of stones. Um, I'm glad that Tim brought that up because like, that's something that you see in poltergeist cases, Bigfoot cases, you know, um, generalized hauntings, uh, witch stories and, and fairy stories as well. The idea that these stones will be thrown out of nowhere in poltergeist cases, they are often a ports and there are some actually, um, some really good, uh, reports and some pretty good evidence of these stones, like manifesting <laughs> in, in the middle of a room, a really famous poltergeist, um, was the Humpty Doo poltergeist of Australia. And they actually oh. reported some of this, um, Oh, I heard a sigh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was uh, working with a group called the Australian Skeptics at the time that this happened. And, oh, uh, okay. yeah, so I, I, I wasn't directly involved, but, uh, yeah, I, I do know of that story, and it's a, a great name, isn't it? Yeah, uh, and hump, Humpty Doo is literally one of my favorite words at this point. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a great name. I'm sure that you have a, you have opinions, so I'll, I'll, I'll just leave the I'll, – maybe I'll, I'll sort of uh, pivot and say – they captured evidence consistent with what people report in uh, poltergeist cases, which is that literally these stones are warm to the touch. And they allegedly captured um, a stone on thermal video that actually started hot and got colder. Um, these reports, whatever it is, seem to start out warm and get colder. And this actually happens in Bigfoot reports, but people have always been assuming that the Bigfoot was, you know, holding rocks in its hand or something. But if you look at the Minerva monster uh, flap of, the, I believe, the 1970s in Minerva, Ohio, um, um, some of the kids who had interactions with this Bigfoot creature up on the ridge behind their house, they would you know, take a rock and mark an X on it and throw the stone. And when the stone would be thrown back, it would be warm to the touch. With, with mm-hmm. what I saw, I think it was a Channel 7 News or something or some current affairs TV show that went in there and, and did some filming at the time and uh, actually caught one of the, the um, members of the household throwing rocks and throwing batteries and other things. But I think that they claimed it was kind of a pious fraud thing where all the phenomena was true, but they were having to try to prove to this uh, TV crew what was what was going on to give them an example of, of that kind of thing. But I think that there were batteries found on fans as well that would send them hurling around the room and all, all different kinds of things. Well, and you know, that's something that I realize this is going to sound like being an apologist of the highest order, but I will agree that, you know, every time, you know, you see these poltergeist cases, there often is some point during the investigation where people are, um, are literally just faking stuff. Um, I tend to be of the opinion that a lot of these things will, a lot of people will have startling things happen to them. Um, 
you know, genuinely anomalous things. And then they're asked to provide evidence or to, you know, to sort of perform for it. And, you know, you see this in mm-hmm. the Uri Geller spoon bending and you see this in every poltergeist case. You see it in, you know, the contactees of the 1960s and 70s, the UFO contactees who had these incredible experiences and then kind of developed these weird <laughs> cults and religions around themselves. Um, I think that, I think that that's part of the phenomena and, you know, uh, well, we, we talked to Guy Lyon Playfair about the uh, infill poltergeist, and he talked about that as well, where, you know, he believed it was all real, but Janice did fake some of it and got caught. You know, it's just, it's just like all these, it seems to be a common thing among like literally every poltergeist case where at least once or twice someone's caught faking it. And it's always about them saying that they felt pressure to continue something that was not reliable, you know, and, and, and I... I'm sympathetic, you know, I, 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 I'm super skeptical, but I, I certainly can feel the, like, once the story has gotten to that point that there's people there looking for the phenomena, there's got to be a tremendous, really per- believe. yeah, there's got to be a lot of pressure, you know? Well, yeah. and, and, you know, if, if you look at this from like a meta, um, not a metaphysical, but just like a meta, like textual level. Um, right, right, right. Yeah. George, George Hansen's The Trickster and the Paranormal has said that this is just, this is just what happens because a, a lot of these paranormal phenomena embody that trickster archetype and the trickster archetype really does um it's sort of self-defeating self-negating so the idea that there is some sort of again i'm a big fan of archetypes i know tim is too um but there's some sort of archetypal drive that nature that uh in its nature sort of never wishes to be discovered and sort of orchestrates and pulls the strings um behind the scenes i know that sounds kind of silly and highfalutin but like kind of love that idea too at the same time uh, and it's it, it is it is admittedly a convenient excuse but it is very consistent with a lot of what he's seen um because you see the same thing with uh you know uh gurus and um yeah. to the extent that you know gurus and con men are often the sort of the same thing <laughs> that was the one of hansen's big thing as well. And, well and coming from the skeptical side i find it interesting because I see the archetype as being a culturally available template that people feel compelled to conform to. And so, you know, whether either of our sides, like either interpretation is real, we still find this common narrative structural thread in common across these things. I, 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 it's fascinating to me. Yeah. It, it scratches my um, my inner Jungian, inner literary critic sort of, <laughs> sort of itch that I have, <laughs> you know. Uh. But you're young at heart. <laughs> so in terms of classification, then, if we're we're talking about uh, poltergeist-like activity and and uh, Bigfoot-like uh, descriptions or, or symptoms of, of poltergeist, are we talking about these things being uh, classified as Bigfoot or poltergeist or both? It gets it gets well, a bit muddy. Yeah, I mean that that sort of gets to my earlier comment about fairies and aliens, I think Tim and I would both just agree and say the other. Tim has a great uh, a great uh, a quote that he's sort of workshopping around. I hear him lately talking about, uh, hey, Tim, it's all poltergeists. It's all fairies. What do you say? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm really agnostic on, on the categorization of this stuff. I... I I tend to think fairy lore maybe has the most accurate interpretation of a lot of this stuff. But having said that, um, I don't think it's accurate at all. All I really feel comfortable saying is that I strongly suspect 
um, that we're dealing with that, that, that a lot of things in the, in the paranormal have some sort of genuine basis. And even if, even if not, I think we overestimate the number of genuine hoaxes and frauds there are in this field. I think that a lot of the just average reports and cases and accounts that you see, if they are not truthful, are just misidentifications. Um, I don't think, I think that there aren't a lot, I don't think there are a lot of people who are outright lying. Um, at least, the, in other words, the people believe that they saw what they saw. And I think Tim's experiences on Strange Familiars would sort of speak to that as well. He's, he's sort of, didn't you say you had somebody who had a, I don't know where you talk about this, Tim, but um, you had somebody who was a, who had like read voices for a living or something? Yeah, he was he was trained at a casino and he they, they trained him to tell when people were lying. And uh, he was talking to me about about the show and he said uh now this is probably around you know episode 100 or so so say i've I've had maybe 80 guests on at that point and at that time he told me you know hey i really like your show um he's like out of all of it you know with my training he's i think he said there were two people that were lying do you want to know who they are and i said no no i absolutely don't want to know because it's (laughs) you know i just don't i don't i don't want to know but he said he said that's a pretty good record he's like i can tell when people are lying uh, no, I don't know. You know, I've taken him at his word too. Maybe, maybe he couldn't tell, but uh, if he was accurate, that's that's pretty good. You well, know? I think that's the thing. You know, as skeptics, I think we always take the position that until you prove something, it's it's we have to assume it's not real. Mm-hmm. But clearly, people are reporting stuff sincerely a lot of the time, whether it's their interpretation is real or not. They experienced something and that's how they came away from it. You know, that's what they got out of it was something paranormal, supernatural. Yeah. We think a lot of them are jumping to conclusions, but you can't deny that people have weird experiences and, and it's what they make of it. Right. That's, that's what I find fascinating. And that at this it's point. common. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my, my wife was, you know, is a, very much a skeptic and she moved from literally saying you're all crazy to she came with me to a few conferences and so forth and and uh i get great stories there people i i know when i'm gonna get a story because someone will stand away from my table about 10 feet and wait till everybody else is going they'll kind of like shuffle their feet and look down <laughs> and everybody else will leave and they'll come up and they'll they'll you know they'll start out they'll just like you really believe in this stuff and you know you know i say yeah you know i, I talk to people all the time and then then they'll, you know once they get comfortable they'll tell their story and she's been at the table with me and heard people tell their story and and you know, I remember specifically like this, this one fellow like just waited and waited and waited and, came, and specifically asked to talk to me and came up and his daughter actually had to lead him up and like talk to this guy. Like, yeah. like, you know, no one has believed me about this. And he sat there and talked to me. He was very emotionally moved and, and so happy that he could just get this story off his chest. And uh, he walked away when he was done. I mean, I begged him to come on my podcast. He had no interest in that. He just wanted to tell a story and go. He walked away and my wife looked at me and, and she, you know, very sincerely said, I don't know what he saw, but he saw something. And that's all I asked for. That's all I can ask for. That's that to me. That's like honest skepticism. Like, you know, she's she just like, I don't know what he saw, but he saw something. And that's uh, to me, that's that's like I said, that's an honest skepticism. And, and I can't I can't really ask anybody to go further than that. You know, I, I tend to take witnesses at their word. But if if you just want to go with. I don't know what they saw, but they saw something that's that's completely honest, I think. Sometimes I wonder if like the whole shebang isn't about belief, you know, because if you look at uh, if you look at stories of any of these things, alien abduction, Bigfoot encounters, um, 
you know, fairy <laughs> encounters, um, or gin encounters, I should say, um, they can all be dispelled through prayer to whatever you believe in. And this is interesting because, um, you know, I, I'm Christian myself, but having said that, um, it doesn't seem to really matter what you pray to in these encounters. And uh, that makes me wonder if belief and intention aren't really what a lot of these things, if they are real, draw their uh, power from. I, I, have a really complicated view of belief as being tied into like a, a a neurological predictive model where like we evaluate the world through like a a neurological structure of belief. Like it's like literally a physical modeling system where we decide what's real and what fits with our world and what doesn't. And, And I have to say that like those, those matters of faith where we can push away the thing, we can reject things we don't believe. Like literally, they literally don't fit with our neural model of the world. So therefore, they're just not real. That's, I think that's, there's something to that. Whether, <laughs> like that doesn't tell us whether things are real or not. It's just about whether we as individuals accept them or not, you know? Oh, that's interesting. Because I kind of go the other way where I'm saying like the other, whatever these other things are, are not allowed to confirm one way or another. So that in, in other words, they almost respect any amount of faith. So, you know, it doesn't matter. They're well, not allowed to confirm. Yeah, that, that's the, uh, the Fright Night model. You got to have faith, right? <laughs> I love that. I'm wondering what you pray to if you see Bigfoot then. Ooh, uh, whatever's handy. <laughs> <laughs> the God of dry underwear. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, it's like I, I'm the skeptic who always looks for Bigfoot at night when I'm driving. You know, it's like I, I want to speed up and hit it because if it's real, I want to leave a, a dent in my fender and have some evidence, right? So, yeah. You may hit it. You may dent your fender. Yeah. Uh, but even if you killed it, it wouldn't be around for long. Well, that's, that, that's possible as well. But I'm yeah. sure going to try. That's... <laughs> 100% of the time, people who have claimed to kill it or, or possess a body in one way or another, not 99% of the time, not 99.1% of the time, 100% of the time, the bodies disappear. They go missing without question. I think the one ex- exclusion would be the uh, the Bigfoot here in Georgia, which turned out to be a, a suit full of possum guts. But yeah, yeah, other than that. <laughs> if there ever was a real body, I don't think there was in that case. Well, now there's that know. question as well. Yeah. yeah that, what a sh- God. I'm embarrassed for my state. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the, those hoaxes that Josh writes about in his trickster chapter. Yeah. And what's interesting about that, you know, I sort of mentioned George Hansen's trickster thing. And uh, he talks about how hoaxes embody these specific aspects we saw time and again that are all, again, aspects of these trickster figures. Um, you know, social leveling is a big thing with a lot of these trickster figures because they upset norms and social norms. And, you know, with the Georgia Bigfoot hoax, you had uh, uh, an, a, a police officer who claimed that he was working with um, a con man to get, you know, not a con man, sorry, a, a convict to get the Bigfoot body out of the woods. <laughs> and then, and then, and then, but also, but also social leveling in terms of someone being brought low because he was like this decorated war not warrior decorated police officer because he had been wounded in the line of uh in the line of of duty and he completely lost his job and was disgraced after this and again the idea of liminality he he's he cooked up this hoax during this time where he was on medical leave so he wasn't employed but he wasn't not employed so you've got that liminal aspect in there as well it really is interesting to see how um how these things, again, from a Jungian perspective, really do seem to to adhere I never to those thought of this types. before. Maybe he was on pain medicine. Maybe he was an oxymoron. 
Oh. <laughs> you scared them away. That was terrible. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I, you, you, you've done better. You've done better. Let's, let's put it that way. I'm, I'm just um, upset being out dad joked left and right here. I'm, I'm out mad. <laughs> I just wanted to say, though, it, you know, skepticism aside, I mean, I don't think that's really a, a factor here. The, the, I loved these books and highly recommend them to our listeners. They, they are a tremendous service to the field because I think they're collecting all the stuff that's sanded off in the other literature. I think, I mean... Like, whether I agree whether this stuff's real or not, you guys are doing a great job of bringing a bright light onto a, a, a whole segment of the of the field that's commonly just pushed off into the shadows. And it, it, it needn't be. I, and, and even though I've seen it before and noticed it, you brought a bunch of stuff to bear that I had not read. And and I think you 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 raise a really critical you know issue here, and I do have to wonder. Besides that, so that's me praising the books. Uh, links in the show notes. How has this been accepted or, or received by the uh, the pelts and paws crab uh, crowd? <laughs> the people who believe in cryptozoology and believe this is a real sort of segment of biology. How have they felt about this? Uh, this uh, this this book and or these two books and, the, and this sort of bringing a light to this part of the field. I, I was just going to say I love pelts and paws. I also love uh, tracks and turds. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but pelts and paws is pretty darn good. Uh, go ahead, Tim. I think they're desperately trying to ignore it and really, really wishing it would just go away. But uh, it's not, and happily, I think with some people, it's forcing a change in the conversation. And it's forcing them to at least acknowledge that this weird stuff happened. I mean, the the simplest way to put it is we don't have much other than witness testimony. And if you're going to believe a witness when they say, I saw an eight foot tall ape man in the woods and then toss out the part where they say, but its hair was bright green or its eyes were glowing or there was a UFO flying <laughs> over its head. It's not intellectually honest at all. You have to, if you're going to take the witness at their word that they saw an ape man, then you got to include the whole account. And so many of these accounts have been just weird washed and, and so forth that, uh, you know, I, let's have the conversation. But that's if we're going to if we're going to use witness testimony, which, like I said, that's, we don't have a lot more. We got some really nice footprints and stuff, casts. But uh, beyond that, we don't have a lot more than witness testimony. If we're going to use witness testimony, then let's use all of the witness testimony and let's believe people, uh, you know. All the way, then. Yeah, yeah it and, was weird washed. I, earlier, I said Bigfoot washed. That's <laughs> it. It's been a long day. Oh no, no, you're good. Um, and and I would add to that the fact that like I don't I, I I don't know if some of these stories are true, but I do find it fascinating when you see something from somebody who submitted a report to the BFRO and never believed in something, and they say something really specific that you can find you know, referenced a couple of places in this text that, you know, somebody from, you know, Pelham, Georgia would never have read this, right? <laughs> they would have never, even with the internet, they would never have, it's highly unlikely that they would have found this one little detail from folklore and, uh, you know, sure enough, it's it's there. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means that, you know, we as human beings all have, again, collective unconscious, if we all have this idea of what you know the supernatural should be and you know we have these uh experiences and we sort of graph those universally held beliefs onto it um or what but 
Um, I think it's really, I, I think that's really where a lot of these unexplained anomalous studies really gain their strength is from that, 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 that longitudinal comparison. Um, but in terms of, in terms of the reception, uh, there, there, there was some snark from some, uh, from some people early on. <laughs> we had some, <laughs> Tim and I had some snark before we even released the book, didn't we, Tim? <laughs> um, but it's, it's been a lot. I have, I haven't heard as much afterwards really at all. I, I think there's a couple people here and there, um, but nobody has really been, for me at least, combative or um, confrontational about it. I think Tim's had some more interactions with people than I have, but. Uh, you know, this was begging to be written, and I feel, you know, lucky that we we were able to do it. But it really should have been written a long time ago because uh, yeah. I've I've heard for a long time that once you get the people at the conference out to the bar after their lecture and you get a couple of drinks in them, that's when they start saying, "You know what's weird? I saw all these, you know, orbs of light when we were on our." on our uh, Bigfoot hunt. We didn't see any big, any Bigfoot, but people had seen Bigfoot there and before in the past and all we saw were these lights or, you know, or, you know, just I see all these weird synchronicities and stuff. So and you know I think these say. things happen. Yeah. Once you go portal Bigfoot, you never go mortal Bigfoot. That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, uh, I think it's such a, a great concept uh, for a book and, and you're right. This really should have been written earlier. And uh, over the years, Blake and I have encountered some of these kinds of links and, and uh, just the more you, you talk about these connections, it's uh, a lot more evident to, to us. Uh, but I still can't really see the link between Bigfoot and women in white. Oh. Is there a particular story there? I'm just curious about that. I, we, I know we need to close off soon, but uh, thank, I'm... Th- thank you for remembering that. Um, and I, I'll say, I, I, this is my little disclaimer that I say every time Tim, Tim talks about this, I thought Tim was absolutely full of it. He's like, have you ever noticed that people see cryptids or Bigfoot and they see women in white? And I was like, no, Tim, you're, you're full of it. And sure enough, he comes <laughs> back with like what I think is the best chapter out of that first book. So I'll, I'll sit back now. Cool. Yeah, um, I mean... <laughs> How soon did you want to close up the show? <laughs> Talk as long as you like. <laughs> uh, um, so th- this started uh, on Sasquatch Chronicles, and these uh, there's a certain case where these two brothers are seeing all these different Bigfoot creatures and, and so forth. And then they start seeing this weird woman walking around their neighborhood who was in these white – she always wore white and had these, like, oversized shoes – and uh, this is a really interesting aspect to the case that I, that I took note of um, and kind of paid attention in, in the forums there. And then other people started saying, hey, I, I saw this weird woman in right white and drove down the road two miles and then saw Bigfoot and, you know, things like that. And I start so I started kind of paying attention to it. And then I I was uh, some folks ended up coming on my podcast, but they had their own podcast and they were talking about seeing this this ghost of this, this woman in white. And, uh, I, for some reason I thought, I was like, you, you're going to see a cryptid. You're, they're going to see a cryptid. And then within days they saw like what, what conforms to like the, the devil monkey kind of, uh, saying like a, like a four or five foot tall kind of baboon like creature. Uh, they, they saw this, this thing within days. And so then I was like, Oh my goodness. So I started talking about it a little on my podcast and I was contacted by another local guy who said, you know, hey, I had all these Bigfoot experiences. Meet me out in this area called Palm Bank. So I meet him there that day. 
And that's not where he had his Bigfoot experience. That was like less than a mile away from from his experience uh, as the crow flies. And he says, do you know why we're here? I said, no. I like. He's like, well, my experience was, you know, up, up the mountain a little ways. He's like, but this is a place called Palm Bank. And right here, there's a story of of a woman in white and this whole legend of this, this you know, ghost of a woman in white. So now I'm thinking, OK, so there has to be something to this. I went to another local sighting guy had seen two Bigfoot on his property. And uh, I did all the normal stuff that he saw him across the pond. I went, you know, went over there with my walking stick. How tall were they? You know, I'm raising my stick. Tell me when to stop. Where were they standing, et cetera, et cetera. As I'm packing up my stuff, he kind of comes up to me and he just offhandedly mentions, like, you know, my house is haunted, too. And me being who I am, I'm like, OK, it's like, put the brakes on. Tell me about this. And he starts telling me about all this poltergeist phenomenon and, and showing me pictures of, of these very typical kind of ghost pictures, these kind of hazy, kind of smoky figures he'd taken photos of. And he said, but I have one that's clear as day. I took in my mirror. I was like, well, let me see it. Let me see it. And he shows me this photo, and it's a woman in a white dress. He just took a picture of her in, in his mirror. I was like, oh, my goodness. So so now I'm like, okay, there's something to this. And it's probably around this time that I mentioned to Josh and he was kind of like, well, you know, you, you go for that, Tim, <laughs> go ahead and waste your time on that. I started digging in. And I, so I'm looking into these women in white sightings in Europe. These, the Royal families in Europe would have these women in white sightings and they would always predict death for them. And I came across, I think it was the Austrian Royal family. They had a name for this woman and they, they called her Bertha. And it mm. said, I'm reading about this, and now Bertha is a sort of a medieval form of of Perkta, this, and they call her a goddess. She's not quite a goddess; she's more of a like a fairy figure, one of these like a Baba Yaga or, or you know one of these sort of uh, yeah, yeah, very folklory, kind of yeah. witchy sort of figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I so I was like, well, now I need to look into this. So I'm looking into into Perkta, and this is where what blew the whole thing open for me. So it says, you know, Perkta always wore white. She would appear either as young and beautiful or as an old hag. She had, very interesting, either one or both feet were oversized and took the form of a swan's foot. So here we have the three-toed bird foot again. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, wow, that's that's really interesting, this woman in white. But then it, it broke down to her, her kind of retinue, and she has these two groups that follow her around. One is known as the Heimchen. And these are all the souls of the lost children that she she you know lured into the woods and and who died, and they take the form of will o' the wisps. So here we have these orbs that follow her around, and then the other part of her retinue, and this is just what sealed the deal for me, was what's called the Perkton, and this is a group of hairy wild men that follow her around. And right then I was just like, okay, this is a thing. And started looking in folklore all over the world, and there is example after example. I've not found it in Asia yet. I'm saying yet because I have confidence that at some point I'm going to find something. But all over the world, in Africa, you know, Native American accounts, in, in Europe, there are these folkloric wild men and their wife or their female counterpart, or there's different names for them, is a, a woman who wears white or sometimes, uh, rarely, a lot less common, it is a, a white creature. It's a similar creature, but she's also white. But uh, it, And it's just again and again. It's in Russia. It's in England. It's you know all across Europe. It's, it's everywhere in northern Africa, I think. Just it's incredible. And it just keeps going and going. And, you know, at this point, we found probably just as much, again, that, that I listed in the book that people have contacted us with 
since then. It's just like here's another example. Here's another example. And Baba and Yaga lives in a in a in a in a hut that travels around on chicken feet. Thousands yeah. lives. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And there are some <laughs> there are some uh, Baba Yaga analogs in like Siberia that are tall and covered in hair and bulletproof, which is another thing that people talk about Bigfoot. You know, um, but uh, no, people have sort of taken this and run with it in terms of. Uh, we had one one guy who said that uh, he was wondering if like the the, the Christmas tree wasn't uh, the Bigfoot like a representation of Bigfoot itself <laughs> because um, you know you've got the tree which is the outdoors and you've got the 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 balls which are the balls of you know the orbs of light that people see around Bigfoot and you've got the woman in white as the angel on the top and of course Santa Claus is Bigfoot. I mean, Santa Claus is a wild man, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a pretty clear, there's a, there's a clear, I mean, you could probably do a third book just on this, Tim. It's, 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 there's a clear line that you can trace through Dionysus and the green man and Odin and the wild man and Santa Claus and Satan. Well, and, and how Claus. many blurry photos have been taken in front of a Christmas tree on Christmas morning? Exactly. <laughs> it's the Bigfoot force field. Yeah. Oh. But, oh, 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 and then the, uh, the Thomas Campion thing, Tim. Yes. You're going to make me try to remember that quote. Them that die maids lead apes in hell. That was a, a quote used in uh i think late medieval early renaissance time and it it started out as a sort of uh in use to by protestants to um kind of uh take a jab at the catholic clergy priests and nuns and but uh <laughs> if you look into it uh there's all these but again folkloric stories that sort of conform to that um is that the aspect of it you wanted me to dig into josh i Oh, no, I, I just thought it was, I mean, I just thought it was interesting because you've got that, uh, then the die maids implies, as you mentioned, white and then leading right. apes in hell. Well, I was also just going to add that the uh, women in white, when you were initially telling me the, the story, it made me think of vanishing hitchhikers. And uh, I I just wondered if there was some possible link to to those kinds of stories too, like Resurrection Mary, a woman in white who's who keeps reappearing and, and if there's might be some kind of link there too. Yeah, well, I mean, you tend to get these women in white stories and then you can kind of map Bigfoot accounts on top of them a lot of times. A lot of times, you know, people will see them in the same place. Um, you know, in general, the woman in white, like archetype, spirit, whatever you want to call it, is universal and it's it's even more common than than the wild man for sure so you get these these women in white stories certainly without the wild man uh, associated right. with it and you get wild man stories without the woman in white but you know i found so many so many accounts of it that uh, y- you know there's there's some you know maybe not all the time but there's there's definitely a, a relationship there worth exploring i think sure sure that's a good that's a really good question i you know, I I have described a couple times this project to Tim as as uh, drinking through a hose. You know, because <laughs> there really is. We we've been told for years and years and years that this that these weird Bigfoot things are these examples are outliers. They don't happen that often, and you know, they, if if they do happen, it's a coincidence. And, and man, we left a lot of stuff out. We really oh, left yeah. a lot of stuff out. Yeah, we we could have. I mean, no, I don't think we could have been uh, exhaustive, you know, and and put every case. We we just used a few cases to you know illustrate each point. In some chapters, we use more than others because something you know, like like weird lights in Bigfoot, 
you know, I think we use a lot more examples than other chapters just to show people like how how common it is for people to see you know weird lights around Bigfoot. But it, you know, in no case did we use everything. And if we, mm-hmm. I like to say, if we used every weird case we found, there, there probably would have been ten books. You know, it's just there's so much of it. There's, just, there's no to, shortage of it. Yeah, and to to say nothing of tracking down every eyewitness that we that we can. You know, I mean, that's just mm-hmm. yeah. I want to highly recommend. I'm not high. I, I'm just a little buzzed. But I, I want to highly <laughs> recommend your books to our listeners. Um, I really enjoyed them. I think they will too. Um, I, and I think you do a, a really important uh, bit of work here, pulling out the stuff that's commonly ignored in these stories. I think there's just so much weirdness that's being left out in order to sort of make this stuff comport to a physical, real world. And uh, you know, as skeptics, we say, "Well, hey, these these stories that they've got a lot of holes in them." But uh, I mean, that doesn't even cover it. There's so much more going on here than just the uh, the, the the sort of light skeptical treatment. There's a lot of sh- straight up bizarre, quasi supernatural, paranormal adjacent, if not pure paranormal stuff going on here. It's weird, and I, I it's the kind of stuff I think our listeners will enjoy reading. But I think it's also like it's um, kind of an indictment against the field that I think that in their efforts to sort of get that sort of uh, scientific endorsement, they're leaving out huge swaths of the actual case files. So I, I would agree. I would agree. I think, you know, that we need to talk about all of it. Which brings us to, I guess, the question everybody in our audience is wondering, guys, what's your favorite monster? Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a complete hipster here and 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 mention something that I never talk about um, that nobody I feel like ever talks about and that's the Nandy Bear. What? Go on. I really I really like the Nandy Bear. Um, it's this East African creature that um, has been seen. It exists in in uh, not only in folklore of the region but also you know there have been. Uh, explorers quote-unquote who who have seen it and it's uh by varying description it's like this african bear but africa doesn't have bears um and uh other descriptions it looks like a hyena so like a bear hyena hybrid um and people have have suspected that it might be um a, a relict uh herbivore or like a relict you know giant uh, there's these things called uh, I think they're called chelicotheres or something like that. Um, anyway, I've really found the Nandy Bear interesting because nobody talks about it, and uh, sounds like I just pulled that out of my my butt. Chil- but... Chelicothere <laughs> movie, yeah, yeah, that thing, yeah. Um, I think that was in response to us saying earlier that we've heard it all. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, I thought he was sneezing, so. Um, science but i'm oh, sorry bless you what <laughs> that's what yeah, it, it, when it, my family it, sneezes we see we yell sign <laughs> it, it, it's, it's one of those cryptids though that that might stand a good chance of being proven as being an actual animal it's not a weird weirdo cryptid but uh i've always really thought that was a really interesting idea because again people never hear about it so I'm like, no yeah i don't think we've ever talked about yeah. it on the show no, I, I have heard of don't it think before so. we're gonna have to now yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> and we'll put a link to that in the show notes the nandy bear <laughs> Timothy, your Tim turn. doesn't know who I am anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Josh's next book is is all about the Nandy Bear, I think. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, Bigfoot, but 
a very specific kind of Bigfoot. And my favorite Bigfoot cases, and you know, a lot of guys into Bigfoot, they collect you know Bigfoot toys and Bigfoot figures and stuff. And I do too, but only of this very specific kind. So I don't care about brown Bigfoot. I don't care about black Bigfoot. I don't care about any other Bigfoot, but green Bigfoot. I love green Bigfoot. I love green Bigfoot stories. I collected one myself, uh, a local guy in an area called Toad Road. It's right about it. My, my first book and don't look behind you again. Um, I, there was one in the, the aforementioned two brothers case that, that we talked about in Sasquatch Chronicles. One of the creatures they saw, they said was green. Uh, I just noticed that green Bigfoot is also a chronic strain. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, uh, <laughs> oh, it sounds like I, Christmas uh, Bigfoot. Yeah. And, <laughs> Christmas uh, tree. It, there's a case you talk about, you know, the strangeness being, you know, cut away from these cases or sanded off. Uh, there's a, a case called Fluorescent Freddy. And in all the uh, that was written about it, you would read about this big hairy creature that people were seeing in the 1950s in, I think it was Indiana. And they'd say, oh, yeah, they, they called him Fluorescent Freddy because he had red or orange glowing eyes, depending on, on who you read about it. Well, I dug in and I, I found the original newspaper reports and he was called Fluorescent Freddy. Yes, he did have red or orange glowing eyes, but he had green fur. And that's mm. why they were green hair. And that's why they called him the kids in the neighborhood called him Fluorescent Freddy, because he had bright green hair. So I love green Bigfoot. And the, those are the only uh, sort of Bigfoot ephemera kind of things I actually call that, that sounds so much like the green man from from England. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I have a friend who's, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of Green Men pubs. And they actually have like a Green Men pub association for all the people who own a Green Men pub. Huh. And so one of my friends here in Georgia has set up a British pub in his basement. Uh, he's from England and he's he's got this beautiful Green Men pub. And he's got the Green Men logo all over the place. He set, he set up um, giant megaliths in his backyard. It's so cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Well, they both proved us wrong anyway with their answers. Oh, no, this is good stuff. I hadn't, you know, this is, these are great. We've never had these before. These are, these are great. Well, guys, thank you so much for making time for us today. And, and we will yeah, put links thank you. to your books in our show notes. And uh, I think our listeners will really get a, a kick out of reading your work. And well, I, thanks so much. You, I noticed in one of your interviews, you hinted that you'd be doing an audible version. Are, have you guys done any work on that yet? Uh, you, we have to figure out what form it's going to take. Uh, we had a company reach out to us, but, uh, that didn't work out. So, uh, yeah, there, there, at some point there should be an audio version, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Well, I hope you do. When you do, please let me know, especially if it's on audible, cause I'll be snatching that up. We'll do monster talk. You've been listening to monster talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to an interview with Timothy Renner and Joshua Kutchen talking about their two-volume look at Bigfoot stories that are weirder than what you're probably used to. Where the Footprints in Volume 1, The Folklore, and Volume 2, The Evidence. A link to these and the other books we mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes. Reading all these strange, quasi-paranormal Bigfoot reports doesn't make me any more inclined to believe in the reality of these animals but it continues to fascinate me and makes me think that there's a lot about the human mind and the way we experience the world that we still don't understand scientifically. Will we ever? I don't know. But pretending that such reports don't happen certainly moves us no further towards understanding the phenomena and the many overlapping fields that comprise monsterology. Hey, Monster Talkers, we'll be doing a live Monster Talk this Sunday night, April 4th, 2021 at 8 p.m. Eastern. 
I think that will be found at youtube.com forward slash Monster Talk. But be sure and check our Monster Talk Facebook page or our feed at patreon.com forward slash Monster Talk for the latest information on that. This week we're going to be discussing two really interesting vampire cases and it should be a lot of fun. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones, and we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for listening and for your support. been a Monster House presentation.